happening, everybody, and welcome back to the Chaplaincy On The Go podcast. I'm your host, Josh Zorha, and this podcast is brought to you by the Fearless Family of Churches. We are finishing up a conversation with Lena O'Connor talking about chronic illness in children and the nature of grief that comes along with that. In our last session, Lena shared a bit of her journey with her daughter, Piper. And now we're going to jump into what does it mean to have children where one is, quote unquote, not neurotypical or neurodiverse or chronically ill, and another who seems to be, for all rights, neurotypical. And what does it mean to navigate that? And how does that impact some of the grieving process? We're also going to talk a little bit about how to deal with people who don't know what to say. I will tell you, as I shared some space and some time with Lena, I learned a lot from her. And I am so incredibly moved by how gracious she is in the way that she responds to people who just don't know what they don't know when it comes to working with and loving children who are chronically ill. And I hope you can take a lot away from Lena's time as well. We're going to jump in right now. So you, you have, you have a boy now. Yes. Talk a little bit about this season of should we get pregnant again? What will this look like? The story that you told yourself in that. Okay. So as soon as we had Piper and when we got the diagnosis, they had tested Mike and myself to see if it was genetic and it's not, it's a de novo, which means random mutation in Piper. Um, I won't get too into the weeds and the medical stuff, but basically there is a risk of mosaicism, which means in a certain pocket of your body that some of your DNA or some of my eggs or some of my sperm or whatever could have been affected uh, by this mutation, even though we are not carriers for it. So, okay, that's scary. Um, They can't test for it. And so you're just kind of chancing what, what might happen. So I went down this whole pathway of, am I supposed to do IVF? Are we, are we not supposed to have any more kids? Am I supposed to just trust God? Like, what are we supposed to do? And, you know, frankly, the doctor said you, you don't have an increased risk to have another child because you're not carriers, but it, you have the same risk as any other person walking off the street, basically. So that put me at ease a little bit, but I still reveled with the decision. Well, we were people walking off the street before. Right, exactly. That's not helpful. Exactly. So I felt like, you know, we, we got to a point where Piper was fairly stable and we really just wanted to enjoy her for a while. And we did. And we always knew we wanted more than one kid. And, and we just finally got to a point of acceptance and we said, if God gives us another PDCD kid, then we're meant to have two. And that did not happen initially. And I think you had given me, cause I had asked you like, what am I supposed to do? What, what is God trying to tell me? And I think your advice was something along the lines of whatever you feel most comfortable with is what you should do. Whatever feels right. And 
it took time and healing, but I wasn't ready at that time. And I remember when we got that diagnosis for Piper, um, it was in the end of July. So we still had several good months of weather. And every day when I got home from work, I went on a walk by myself with Piper and I would be listening to music, crying, talking to God, like asking him, what, is, what does he want? What does he want our family to look like? Is Piper supposed to just have all of our attention? Um, yeah, it was, it was hard. So we eventually decided to try again and we had Patrick and, um, he does not have PDCD and that's a whole other thing to grapple with because I know siblings that have, um, children that have siblings with disabilities are some of the sweetest, most empathetic, like kindest people ever. And that's my hope for Pat. Mm. Um, but also there is a lot of guilt in, in, um, in the fact that we have now brought, well, I don't know if Mike feels this way. I certainly do. I've now brought this child into the world that will have a lot of heartbreak and grief in his future with the loss of a sibling. Um, and that's, that's hard, but the, the joy definitely outweighs the sorrow, but you always worry about like, you know, messing up your kids or traumatizing your kids. And from day one, I already have, have that guilt. Um, he's so great with her already. And you can just tell he's obsessed and wants to play with her and, and she, with him, she's very interactive and, um, that there, everything's going to be fine, but there is that small nugget that you doesn't go away. I'm pretty sure I screwed up my son this morning. <laughs> so there's that. Yeah. And that's real. I think, I think every parent, I want to believe every parent is like, I don't want to screw up my kid. Mm -hmm. I want to believe that. I'm sure there are some people in the world who maybe don't think that. Um, but I know I do. I know Christy does. And, and yeah, I, I can't even imagine the challenge. Mm -hmm. I can't. I know. And just the logistics of the everyday life and um, having two children that are not mobile. And how do I go places? Because Piper has lots of appointments and I can do it because I'm a super mom. I know that, but it's, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's hard. You are a super mom, but even super moms can't do it all. Right. Mm -hmm. How, um, how, how do you do with asking for help? Um, I'm not bad at asking for help, I don't think. When was the last time I'm, you asked for help? Oh, well, we have a lot of help already every week. Um, okay, my okay, so my in-laws come every Sunday and spend the night because then they babysit on Monday. And yesterday we asked if they could come earlier so Mike and I could go and do some Christmas shopping and I had to get other work done that's just easier to do without having to watch the kids. So there you go. That's my small example. That, you know that I'll take that. <laughs> did that come naturally to you? Or did, you did you have to learn that? Oh, I had to learn that. Yes. Um, so growing up, my mom does not have an easy time asking for help. Um, she is the most helpful person and does everything for everyone else, but does not like to ask for help. So I recognize that in her as I, you know, was coming of age and everything. And, um, I, I kind of was like that because I'm, I am very, I'm a perfectionist and I am type A. So 
I like to just do things my way and I like to do them myself. Yeah. And so then when Piper came into the picture, that wasn't possible to balance everything. And thank God I have a supportive spouse too. Um, if, if I was a single parent, I don't know, I would, I would be living with my parents or, you know, like there'd be no way I could do it. So yeah, that that's something that did not come naturally, but thankfully it wasn't super hard to learn for me. Um, remind me, what is your Enneagram type? I'm an Enneagram type one. Oh, with a two wing. <laughs> I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. For those yes. of you who don't know the Enneagram, uh, the Enneagram is a nine-point personality indicator that basically tells you your motivations in life. And a one is called the perfectionist, and a two is called the helper. Mm-hmm. And, and so perfectionists who like to make sure everything is right and helpers who like to make sure that everybody else gets what they need sometimes struggle asking for help because they have to take the risk that it may not turn out the way they want it to. Yes, exactly. So you learned that a little bit. Yes. Thank God. Honestly, the Enneagram is a huge part of my life because I learned so much from it. And I had discovered that before I had Piper. So Mm. (laughs) at least I, you know, I had the benefit of knowing my motivations and, and things before having to utilize that and actively choosing to grow. And remind me, uh, your, your husband, Mike, what's his type? He's a type eight. Ah, yes. The anger. You guys are in the anger. I know. Triad. Yes, we have a lot. I call it heated fellowship at our house. <laughs> mm-hmm. My wife calls those discussions. <laughs> yeah. Yep. We had a discussion this morning, which is linked to me messing up my kid. Uh-huh. Turns out, you know, usually those <laughs> things go together. When your kids witness your discussions and their yes. heated, heated fellowship, I'm going to write that one down. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Perfect. Yep. Sell a little bit here. Um, what has this whole process this journey so far taught you about loss and the nature of grief for you? Um, well, that it's inevitable and that happens to everyone. And, you know, I'm, I'm definitely a person of faith. However, growing up and even today, my biggest fear growing up was that I was going to lose my parents young. I was going to lose my husband. I mean, it just is. And I think that that's fairly normal or typical, but um, having to kind of come to the reality that, yeah, this likely will happen. If if I live a long, healthy life myself, I'm probably going to lose Piper before, you know, I'm gone. And um, because it's made it, itself more real and present in my life, I feel like there's a lot of um, pre-grieving. and. I don't think that that is so true for Mike, but it is for me. And Mm. I think that's okay. We're all just different. And Mm. I have grieved a lot of the things that are going to happen in the future or that I'm going to miss out on. And that's okay. Um, It's not easy, but 
what I learned early on, and I had I had seen another um, parent of a disabled child do an interview, and basically they said, you know, we were so sad and so devastated of what wasn't happening and what was going to happen in the future that we were paralyzed by this and blinded by this mm. so much that we were missing what what our child was doing. Um, and that's the truth. That's exactly what it was for Piper. We, if if you're so stuck in the sadness and the grieving of either the future or the past, you are missing out on the greatest gift God gave. And that's mm-hmm. Piper. She is so happy and joyful and she's here for a reason. And mm-hmm. she loves her parents and she loves to cuddle and she loves music. And she, she has all of these desires in her heart that you would never know if, if you didn't take the time to get to know her. And so that that's really just how I processes process it is I try to just my best not be sad when I'm with her because she senses that she knows that and and that's not fair to her. Mm. She doesn't know her life is sad. She just mm. knows that's her life. So mm-hmm. when we are around her and we speak about her, she hears that. She understands yes. that. Yes. She she doesn't verbally communicate, but she can, she understands 100%. Yes. I think, uh, I so I see that a lot with caregivers mm-hmm. that speak about someone while they're in the room with mm-hmm. the person they're caring for. And one of my challenges in that is they can hear you. They mm-hmm. can hear you. And you're not to get overly biblical here, but uh, the power of life and death resides in the tongue. Mm-hmm. The scripture actually says that. And so like what you say is taken in how you behave. I mean, there's so much neuroscience too, uh, to, to back up just the power of a peaceful presence um, mm-hmm. and how that translates to a child's formation is so significant. Mm. Yeah, it's it's 100% true. I think that's a, just for parents who are listening, parents of any age and stage of life, mm-hmm. the way that you not only talk to your kids, but the way you talk about them and the way that you talk about other people around them really mm-hmm. impacts who they become. And that's true for the neurobiology. That's also true for their souls. Mm -hmm. Wow. So I'm thinking, Lena, as we wrap up here, I'm going to venture out and say there's probably going to be at some point a parent going through chronic illness or a unique need or something that isn't what would be called neurotypical for their mm-hmm. child. And they're listening to this and they, they're they on the front end of whatever that journey looks like. Maybe they just got the diagnosis or mm-hmm. they just got the upset. They just got the news. What do you tell them? Um, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to be mad. It's okay to feel however you feel. You just can't stay there forever. Um, and and how to achieve that is through community, through family and friends, through God, 
through music, through exercise, through whatever it is for you that brings you joy or gives you a therapeutic like escape that will help you process and accept and, and, and get there. And I remember, um, you know, once I found this Facebook group and the other PDCD parents, we're constantly getting new parents and with diagnoses and I've messaged several of them and they are frantic. They don't know what to do. And, and I have really found purpose in reaching out to them and talking to them because I've been there. And I remember being in their seat and having no one because I didn't have the Facebook group yet. I didn't have a diagnosis. Mm. Um, and so I needed that so bad, even with all the support I have, which I, I think all the support we had was more than probably 99% of people. Like we couldn't have had more support, but I didn't have the, the specific community. And um, the, if it's, if, if it's, possible for you to find that community or you have a diagnosis you need to those are your people they get you they know you they're going to have so much knowledge and advice whether it's the day-to-day doctor's appointments or just the grieving and the acceptance and all that and um i mean i i can't tell you how many messages i've gone back and forth with on instagram and facebook of people that are quote unquote strangers And I'm crying while I'm messaging them because I get it. And they are crying messaging me because they just got their child's diagnosis and they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I get it. I, I, I get it. When we first got her diagnosis, like I said, I did not physically want to leave her side because I thought how stupid would I be? if I went to work now when I might only have a year left with Piper, like that's, that made no sense to me. And now I'm on the other side of that and I can, you know, see that life still goes on and and that's okay. But that's my biggest piece of advice is find your community and and it's okay to be sad. And if people are telling you that you need to get over it or you need to like get through it, ignore them. Mm. You will, you will. Mm. Um, for for a season it's healthy for and then it's like a roller coaster or waves like it'll it'll come and it'll go your sadness your grief your happiness everything and that's normal it's and normal. it's normal i talked to um i talked to a widow yesterday who someone said something just incredibly stupid mm-hmm. about her loss and um, I have this phrase, I, maybe I told you this, you know, the first year of, of loss, you have to embrace, you know, it's going to be the year of the suck. This is, uh-huh. Everything's going to suck. Christmas is going to suck. Thanksgiving's going to suck. Like every holiday, every birthday, whatever it's, it sucks. And yeah. you just, you have to know that that's coming. But then the other is that you have to embrace the year of the idiot. And, uh-huh. um, they're just, you know, people, people just, they say stupid things when they are faced with loss. And that's not because they're bad people. I've said uh-huh. stupid things. I've, and I, I'm a good person. And I, I, most of the time I'm a trained person, Yeah. but loss is just really hard. And sometimes in our own anxiety or discomfort, we say things to ease that. And it turns out to be a very poorly timed comment. Yeah. And I will say, um, there are many 
things I see online about, you know, what not to say to someone that's grieving, whether in, in any capacity. And although those are all true, thankfully, I I recognize that they are only saying these things because people don't know what to say. They just want to say something that's helpful and they don't know what to say. So it's better than saying nothing. Which incidentally, saying nothing is probably the best right. course of action. I know, because, but that doesn't feel natural. No, it doesn't. But, you know, even... It, there's nothing I can say. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that I can say to cure your daughter. And there's nothing that I can say to a parent or a person who's lost a loved one that's going to bring them back. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that I can say to undo that trauma. And even if I had the right words, and even if it was the best thing for me to say, it's not going to change the reality. Mm-hmm. And and that's just, that is what it is. I can't change the past. I can't control the future. Mm-hmm. I can be present with you here and now. And that's enough. Yeah. And I think one of the main things people say is, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. And although, again, 100% comes from a, a place of, being empathetic and, and loving. I get it. I receive it. It means a lot to me, but I also, that, that term alone says like, you are living my worst nightmare, basically. Like, I'm sorry, but I'm sorry that this is happening to you. I'm sorry that this is your life. I'm sorry. Piper has to deal with this, which all those things are true. Like that is hard, but it is your life. So if you don't find joy in it, you can't just live in the, I'm sorry space so and Mm. and i don't know it's yeah it's so complicated it is it's very complicated and it all depends on who's receiving the message and what kind of headspace they're in or what kind of personal growth they've done because i've had things said to me that i i leave the situation and i think wow if i wasn't who i am that could have been like that could have, I would have went in a tailspin, whether I would have been mad at the person or I would have just been like sitting on the couch all day, devastated because of the comment. I mean, anything. So I just, I take everything with a grain of salt because people most of the time don't have bad intention. That's such a refreshing thing to hear you say. And uh, you're you're so gracious with that. I I honestly, I don't know how you do it. I don't. And um, I'm, I'm just grateful that you would take some time to share this with us. So shameless plug for EV construction. And Hmm. um, they're, they're, well, just the way that they treat their people is pretty remarkable. And, um, and so it's, it's pretty cool to hear their I don't know, their participation in this journey with you. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree 100%. It helps when mom and dad both work there. So Mike and I both work at EV and we're very supported and they know our story and it's it's great. Well, Lena is certainly an expert in navigating 
difficult conversations with people who do not understand the dynamics of loving a child who is neurodiverse, unique needs, or chronically ill. And there's a lot that I took away from that conversation. And I'm so grateful that she would spend her time sharing her experience with us. If this conversation was helpful for you in some way, would you share it with somebody in your life? Maybe someone else that you know who's working through a similar season of grief. Or if perhaps you'd like to have more follow-up from this, reach out to us at chaplaincy at fearlessfollower.org or check out our website, fearlesschaplaincy.org. We'd love to partner with you or your organization to have more conversations like this in the workplace. And so we'd be happy to continue that up with you if you reach out. And we're looking forward to our upcoming episodes. We're going to start unpacking some realities of anxiety and loneliness and addiction. So pay attention for the next coming episodes as we dive into some of the more significant mental health realities that are gripping our communities and the people that we love and maybe even gripping our own lives. We're looking forward to that and we'll talk to you later.